Hey everyone, we've got a great story for this episode. Today we're going to talk about two historical events that were separated by 100 yards but were a decade apart in history. They also tie geographically with two other historical events that took place on the same GPS location that we're looking at today, and those will be in different episodes. Well, back in 1765, things were getting hot here in Savannah, Georgia. And we're not talking weather kind of hot. We're talking if things had gotten out of hand, the American Revolution could have started a decade earlier kind of hot. So why all the fuss? Stick around. I'll give you my take on it. I'm J.D. Bias, and this is History by GPS, where you travel through history and culture, GPS location by GPS location. You can find transcripts of the show at historybygps.com or on the show notes for Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and other podcast platforms for the coordinates of where these events happened. And as for the main location, here are the coordinates. 32.078098 degrees by 81.082878 degrees. Okay, back to a hot time in Savannah. The first incident in 1766 was over a little paper stamp. People got really riled up over this little stamp. So why get a flutter about a small piece of paper? It only cost a few pennies. Well, here's why. The incident took place on the northeastern corner of Savannah's historic district in what the locals call the Old Fort District. Today, the Charles H. Morris Center at Trustee's Garden is on top of the bluff where colonial-era Fort Halifax once stood. Now, this spot is just a few feet away from Savannah's world-famous Pirate's House, which is in a building that sits on a location of the old fort headquarters and may, in fact, after pouring through old records and studying the construction of the facility, I suspect is a section of the old structure that used to be the headquarters for the British during the Revolution. See, right outside that building is where things got heated. Nine years before the start of the American Revolution, Georgia and other colonies were political tender spots, were, and they were growing into tender boxes that were ready to blow. That area right outside the fort, it was open land stretching to the gates of the town one quarter mile to the west. And there, the Sons of Liberty, Liberty Boys, had gathered around the fort's walls, screaming and demanding that they be let in. Now, Captain John Millage and his British Royal Rangers were on the parapets, and they were determined to keep them out. The uproar was over the British Parliament's passing of the stamp tax of 1765, which put a levy on several paper items. In addition to that law, the American Revenue Tax of 1764 a sugar tax, had already inflamed the residents the year before. Like other imposed taxes, the paper tax mandated payment in British pounds and not in colonial currency. See, each colony had its own monetary system with different values based on the English pounds, shillings, and pence. However, all colony currencies were worth less than the British equivalent. On top of that, much of the commercial currency was in barter. Barter being the practice of trading products for products. 
people paid with rum or tobacco or some other commodity, which is one reason the taxman wanted to be paid in British pound sterling. Barter is difficult to access and tax for many reasons. And it's difficult for those paying the taxes because they have to exchange their goods for currency. First to colonial script, which was hindered by a chronic shortage of paper and coin specie, then it was exchanged for British currency. And the total per stamp cost was around two shillings, six pence, which equaled 54 pence, pennies. During the days leading up to the American Revolution, the, as they say, obnoxious stamps represented taxation by the crown. The levy covered things like playing cards, uh, magazines, newspapers, and legal documents. Now, the stamps that were to be distributed in Georgia, they were stored at Fort Halifax. That's where the hubbub came up. Royal Governor James Wright placed them there for protection from the Sons of Liberty who had vowed to burn them. And after the Liberty Boys marched on the fort, Governor Wright wrote in a report, and I quote him here, And on the first appearance of faction and sedition, I ordered in some of the rangers from each post and made up a number here at Savannah, 56 privates and 8 officers, and with which and the assistance of such gents as were the right way of thinking. I have been able to, in a great measure, to support His Majesty's authority. <laughs> this guy writes crazily. This guy didn't know what a period or a comma was. And I'll bet that His Majesty just loved reading this guy's writing. It's hard to read. Okay, so in other words, he brought in 64 soldiers, which had been an easier way to say it, who thought the way he did, and then he armed them and got them ready to defend the stamps and the king's authority to issue them. James Wright held the Sons of Liberty in absolute disdain. In another report, he claimed that the Liberty Boys, as they called themselves, had assembled together the number of about 200 and were gathering fast, and some of them had declared that they were determined to go down to the fort and break open the stores and take out or destroy the stamp papers. End quote. See, the fort was a stronghold for the city, and it was the safest location for the stamps. Wright's report somewhat reduced the actual numbers of protesters that day, though. Some accounts claimed that 600 Liberty Boys, many of whom had gathered in front of Wright's home on St. James Square, Telfair Square, and it decreased in number after Wright implored them to have cooler heads. It's said that half left, but 300 remained. I've read that over 800 were waiting in the city common. So we're talking about a lot of men in a town of about 3,500 people. That's about 22% of the population and a much larger percentage of the men in town. But even that's even allowing for guys from out of town. So with all the trouble, Wright had the stamps loaded onto a boat and carried to Cockspur Island at the mouth of the Savannah River. By the way, remember that the show notes and the GPS location for all the spots mentioned in this episode can be found on the show notes or on historybygps.com. I think you'll like our line of products from Savannah and its history, including some that highlight this episode. And while you're there, leave a comment. 
I'd love to hear your opinion or other information that listeners would like to hear. Man, I might learn something too. Now, in 1776, the cry, no taxation without representation, spread through the colonies like a chill up King George's spine. See, Americans were already paying other taxes, but they paid in currency of their own colony. So having to convert the script into British pounds was an excessive burden. The whole uproar was initiated and fueled by the actions of British elites who wouldn't give parliamentary representation to the colonies and did not care if the Americans were upset. After all, they were the British and they were in charge. The Americans, they thought, were merely peasants working for the homeland. The whole taxation hubbub back then was over the financing of the French and Indian War in America a few years earlier. It was an extension of the British Seven Years' War with France. England said it was by their graces that they saved the colonies during the conflict. But Americans believed and knew that they could take care of themselves. They'd done it for generations and believed that there had been no need for British troops. And for that time, foreign enemies were elsewhere, and Americans had always protected themselves from local threats. The irony was that American colonists, as I said before, considered themselves British citizens, but Parliament wouldn't give them representation. America's natural resources made the colonies far more prosperous than all of the British Isles combined, and everyone on both sides of the Atlantic knew it. So at Savannah, Trustee's Garden, and Fort Halifax, they were swept up in the conflict. Now, where this uproar happened, the fort is gone today, but others replaced it. Fort Savannah, Fort Prevost, and Fort Wayne, Wayne being the last one. And here's a little side note for your trivia collection. Savannians usually call the current brick wall at the site Old Fort Wayne, or the Fort Wayne Wall. But is it Fort Wayne? Here's the paradox. In actuality, it is, and it isn't. And the confusion is justified. The building of the current brick wall in 1853 destroyed the old earthen fort named for General Mad Anthony Wayne after the bricks were laid and the dirt ramparts of the real Fort Wayne were shoveled into the fort's interior, they created a terrace for the gas holders of the old gas works. And during that work, laborers unearthed three cannons, very old cannons. The gas workers later placed these big guns along the wall, making it look like an old fort. Everyone in town knew the fort was located on that spot, so generations later concluded that the brick wall must be the fort. After all, there were cannons there to prove it. So the legend continues. But the wall's purpose was to hold back the dirt for a terrace and support gas holders and other manufactured coal gas equipment at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And it was built by the Savannah Gaslight Company. Now, to confuse the issue even more, the area just inside the wall arch really was part of Old Fort Wayne. If you want to see photos of this, uh, go to a History by GPS website. I've got some on there. Now that part 
is a sunken well section that served as a bomb proof. A bomb proof is a reinforced area where soldiers go to escape enemy artillery. So that's why the area, the wall, and the terrace is Fort Wayne and not Fort Wayne. It's a paradox. When they filled the interior of the terrace, they covered up remnants of the old powder magazine that was the location of our GPS coordinates for this episode. That powder stronghold at Fort Halifax was the site where, in May of 1775, American patriots formed a night raid to capture Governor Wright's munitions after a clandestine meeting with Dr. Noble Wimberly Jones at his home. Word of the hostilities at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts had reached Savannah, you know, the shot heard round the world. Now, Governor Wright was a bit cocky. He had confidence that the brick structure, uh, the powder magazine, was secure, and he thought it was safe from vandalism. After all, it was situated 12 feet under the ground, closed in by iron doors and locks. He incorrectly deduced that it was impregnable. Georgia historian Hugh McCall wrote that the magazine held a considerable supply of ammunition. But so substantial was the structure of the magazine, Governor Wright decided it was useless and unnecessary to post a guard for its protection. McCall wrote, The excited revolutionists all over the land cried aloud for powder. Impressed with the necessity of securing the contents of this magazine for future operations, they quietly assembled and hastily arranged a plan for operations. The Liberty Boys who were in on the raid included Dr. Noble Wimberly Jones, Joseph Habersham, Edward Telfair, William Gibbons, Joseph Clay, Peter Tondy, John Millage Jr., and Andrew Elton Wells, along with some other gentlemen of whom the Council of Safety said were zealous for the cause of American liberty. According to Governor Wright, the total was about 300 pounds of powder, but according to other reports, it was upwards to 600 pounds that was stolen. A portion of the powder made its way to Beaufort, South Carolina. The remainder was reported as having been sent to Boston and used in the Battle of Bunker Hill to fight the British off. Now, did you notice the name of one of the Liberty Boys? It's the same name as the Ranger Captain who guarded the stamps a decade earlier, John Millage. Junior was the son of Ranger Captain John Millage Sr. He had been a boy when the stamp protest took place, but as the call for war increased, he sided with the American rebels. His family is like many in Georgia. We always hear stories about the American Civil War in the 1860s as being fought brother against brother. Well, in Georgia in the 1700s, the revolution was fought father against son in many and if not most cases. John Millage Jr. would go on to become the 26th governor of the new state of Georgia, as well as a U.S. congressman and a U.S. senator. Now, another rabbit trail. I find it interesting that Savannah and Boston have some serious ties over the years. Savannians sent food to Boston after the earthquake that devastated the city, and Boston sent food to Savannah at the end of the Civil War. Over the years, the people of the two cities often rendered aid to each other. 
The reason was because of trade and shipping routes. The cities had close commercial ties, and the well-being of one would impact the commerce of the other. In fact, the last Liberty Boy that I mentioned on the list, Andrew Elton Wells, he was the brother-in-law of Patriot and Liberty Boy Samuel Adams of Boston Tea Party fame. I talk about him in the uh, History by GPS episode Tea Party Shmee Party, which was about the Savannah Sugar Party of 1775. That event happened a few weeks earlier, just a few weeks earlier, than the Powder Magazine raid. Now, the Savannah Sons of Liberty and their adverse view of taxation by the Brits provided a spark of fire that propelled the American Revolution into existence. Parliament and the royal governor's enforcement of the duty on sugar and molasses and other commodities inflamed the underrepresented citizens. Until then, taxes and duties were the exception rather than the rule. Listen to this. Here's what Samuel Adams wrote. For if our trade may be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make of it? Also, Adams emphasized that the colonists believed they were British citizens, and he wrote it down, saying, This, we apprehend, annihilates our charter rights to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes our British privileges for, as we have never forfeited them. We hold in in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representation, are we not reduced from character of free subjects to the miserable states of tributary slaves? (laughs) Things have changed. The tax itself wasn't the main complaint. The main issue was the absence of representation in Parliament. England would pass laws on the colonies without colonial input and did not care about their reaction. It was a proverbial slap in the face for Americans who considered themselves Englishmen and freemen rather than people of another station. But sentiments were changing and the American Revolution was on the horizon. Now, as far as that tax of two shillings and six pence, 54 pence, which is 54 cents in our money. That was the equivalent to a week's wages for the average worker. And that's a lot. It can make a person fight. Unless you live in 21st century America, today we pay more than that in federal, state, and sales tax. Makes you think, doesn't it? So, if you didn't already know this story, now you know. So don't tax me, bro. You know, we need a nice t-shirt that says that. Oh yeah, we, we have one. That's in our store at historybygps.com. Go get yourself one and join the cause for liberty. Remember to hit the like button and subscribe also. Follow if you happen to want to be notified for new episodes that come out. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.